I'm your host, Rabbi Linda Schreiner Khan, and welcome to Tehillah Talks, where teens engage in honest conversation with their rabbi about what it means to be Jewish in the world today. Hi, welcome to Tehillah Talks, where Julian Reach hosts the rest of the Tehillah community, including Rabbi Linda. Elena and Bernie um, to talk about various topics. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Julian has clearly taken over, uh, which is great. It just so happens that this week's Torah portion, Parshat Bo, which means come or enter in, uh, is about the last three plagues in Egypt and also describes some of the ways in which the exodus from Egypt is to be commemorated with the eating of matzah, with the gathering of people, with telling the story. So I was struck by the confluence that this past week was the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and we're in the month of February, which is Black History Month. And you may wonder what ties these elements together, and to my mind, it's History. Why bother? So that's kind of the question I want to throw out on the table. Why Why does looking back matter? Why is it an injunction that goes, that's a biblical injunction of tell your children throughout the generations? Why? Yeah, let's look on oh, your face. Helena, <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Well, this may seem obvious, but when we don't remember, we forget. And if, and we can't forget about all the good things of the past, all the bad things, and when we forget, we make the same mistakes. You think, but, but why these these things in particular? Why highlighting a liberation moment of, of, a, of a death camp? Why do we acknowledge uh, Black contributions in the United States? Why does that in particular matter? And yes, why do we tell the story of Passover every year at a Seder? And is it going through the motions? Or how do we give it meaning so that it's more than just, you know, yada da 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 happened and we should know that? I feel like going through the motions is like focusing on the good parts of history, you know what I mean? And at least when it comes to the Holocaust or like Black History Month, it's also about the really difficult parts of American history or human history. And, like, you have to, obviously we all know this, that you have to learn from past mistakes in order to get better. You know what I mean? So I think that's the basic, like, message of history, I guess. Like, you can learn from it and and take a message that that makes you stronger in the future. So you're, you're all in classroom settings where history is being taught. Would you say that you're being taught dates? How are you being taught history, I guess, is my next question. Bernie, can you answer that one? Well, we've been looking at the history of um, like slavery in, in the U.S. We've looked at uh, some of the first couple colonies in the in the Western Hemisphere that were made Haiti and um, Santo Domingo. So we are learning a lot of dates about like when those things were happening. But we're also talking, we're getting you know more modern and how the histories of those countries like affect where they are now. And I feel like. We're learning a lot about like 
what happened and like how those things affected it. And I feel like that's helpful to see like we're we're learning about like markers, things that are going wrong that are causing problems. So I feel like that's something because if you see the thing that is helpful about history is that you can see all the events laid out, right? When when we're here right now, we don't know what's gonna happen next. That's right. But if we can see patterns in history, we can predict what's going to happen next. And if it's a bad thing, we can prevent it. If we want. If we want to, right? <laughs> How are you? How is history being taught for you? Well, in my grade now, we're learning about U.S. history, like Bernie. Um, we don't really learn. I mean, we do learn dates, but that's not what we focus on. We focus on like both sides of every story. Like, for example, when looking at Jefferson or Washington, we look at, oh, they yes, they were great president. Yes, they're great people. But we can't just look at that. We need to look at how they treated their slaves, how they had slaves. Um, and, for example, when we're looking at slavery, we're reading personal narratives from some slaves, like Frederick Doug- the Frederick Douglass narrative. Yeah, so we can't just forget one side of the story and learn it how it's most reflected now. We're told, though, that history, uh, any kind of history, is it's told by the victor and has uh, the overlay of whoever was successful in that endeavor, whatever the endeavor was, uh, putting their gloss on it so that the way a story is told changes because of who's in power. It's what's happening in Poland right now. At Auschwitz, uh, they're, you know, talking about all the Polish victims, the fact that they were Polish Jewish victims, not so much, but, right, so that's another way of distorting the story and how how do we keep the story intact is another challenge that we have. We were just in New Orleans and... Um, we were taken by the fact that there were many um, historical placards, these copper placards on all these buildings in, in, the, in the French Quarter, and noticed that this very large building, uh, which is now a hotel, has the word market on top. Something else is sort of blacked out. And there's a sign that says this was the largest slave market. Mm-hmm. And until... You know, how long that was. And then we thought, oh, well, New Orleans, are, they're telling us this, giving us this piece of information, only to find out that that plaque was only put on a year ago. Better late than never, I guess. I guess. But it's, how do we still tell the story, right? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that we have to do about history is like, when it comes to the Confederate statues and all this stuff that's been a problem in our nation for the last few years, I think, in a way, it's probably better to leave them up and maybe have a plaque that is, like, more unbiased. But I think that even the fact that people glorify these these figures of racism afterwards is part of history, you know what I mean? And they're a living testament to that. So they have the ability to teach us about our history, and tearing them down is, like, in my opinion, I think the wrong move. You know what I mean? It'd be like, it's or, it's but, destroying history, and you have to keep the shameful, the the bad. You know what I mean? So keeping the shameful on display. Yeah. But so you say it keeps us from making the mistakes of the past. It, it possibly can. <laughs> it possibly can. 
it depends on which narratives you're looking at and mm-hmm. how much you care about not repeating those mistakes. Yeah. When you're, when you're talking about oppressions, you don't want to get into the race of my oppression that I experienced was worse than your oppression. Yeah, of course. Because every oppression is different. Mm-hmm. Although the Holocaust is the only one that crossed uh, national boundaries besides slavery. I mean, I, I would say those are two worldwide oppressions uh, where you can say uh, national boundaries were crossed, different outcomes, different time frame, different situations, yet that that is a commonality. Yeah. Can I just share something um, that I... So there's this guy, Daryl Davis. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He's, um, he's this African-American piano musician who basically was like the first black person to write a book on the Ku Klux Klan. And in the course of writing this book, he developed like these years long relationships with these different KKK members, different national socialists, et cetera. And like, you know, they were like over the course of these friendships, they were still venomous, like, like very racist against him. You know what I mean? They made it clear that he was their inferior, et cetera. But he was his personal reason for writing this book was finding out why somebody who had not met him could hate him so much. So he was really listening to them, even though they were espousing these beliefs that he didn't, he thought were stupid. You know what I mean? So he actually like, he wasn't, he didn't set out to like convert anybody away from those groups. But over the course of his research, like 200 different individuals who were involved in these hate groups ended up like renouncing their memberships and giving him their their robes one of the one of like the grand wizards one of the most powerful guys was actually Baltimore policeman police officer he gave him his police uniform and this guy had been um had just been in prison for conspiring to bomb a mosque for attempting to murder two black men and all this stuff so these these were really violent scary guys and what i was really struck about Daryl Davis was his abil- his ability to like keep a cool head you know what i mean when you when you encounter somebody who has those beliefs or whatever the case is, like your first reaction is to be fearful and to kind of like close up or argue, you know what I mean? And then nothing gets accomplished. So I thought he had a real gift, I guess, of of being able to listen and being able to, over the course of years, show that show to these guys that their beliefs were false. When was when was the book written? I have no clue. <laughs> I know that it, he he did like five years of research. He's still involved in this kind of stuff. Okay. Like he would go to cross burnings, etc. So he he did a TED talk too. Um, I think recently, but yeah, I found that really interesting. And part of the part of one of the points that he made that just struck me was like he pointed out that like his ancestors fought for the Confederacy too. You know what I mean? There were black people who were forced to fight for the Confederacy. There were Jewish slave owners, etc. And he was kind of trying to point out that, like, I honor my ancestors, but I also don't honor the Confederacy and what it stands for. So I thought that was really it was a really powerful story, I guess. And it kind of it speaks to this because he was saying, like, you don't get rid of the shameful. You keep he keeps these robes to to document it, I guess. So I thought that was well, powerful. It, so you were just in the Holocaust Museum, Helena. So. I guess that is a documentation of the shameful. What was your experience of going through that? Well, as I walked through the museum, I didn't have a lot of time to walk through it. So I more, I was walking through each floor, um, kind of looking at what I could. But 
the things that most stood out to me was the the artwork from the children who were who were there the pictures on the wall the just all the names what, saw the shoes what was the, the art hair. like can you just give me a description it was just little kids art um some like drawings or whatever drawings, how did they have colors. stuff like that i mean yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, it depends. Interactions that they had, they had art supplies. Mm-hmm. Other places, they used chalk. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what they, the pieces looked like, but so, Bernie, you were talking about the way history is taught, and and you said on two sides, can history have a a point of view? Because there's just this article in the New York Times comparing. Uh, the way history is taught in Texas versus California. Same publisher. Right. I heard about that. Yeah. You heard about that, right? Different point of view. So as current students in our education system, to what extent does a book, to what extent, let me ask the question differently, to what extent are you taught to read with a critical eye when somebody hands you a piece of material? Is that part of the way you're being taught? I think so. I think they actually do a pretty good job of that. I mean, in history, we don't have a textbook, but when we have readings, you know, we're talking about it, and we usually, you know, try to look at it pretty objectively. Is that possible to look at something objectively? <laughs> well, you always it, bring it yourself into the interaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on what it is, but um, you know, looking at what what happened, and you know. I guess we tend to look at the side of, like, the oppressed more than the oppressors, which is, I guess, bias? I don't know. That seems like not as... It seems like a better bias than... Like, but it still is a bias. Yeah, yeah I guess... I, mean, I, think, I think it's important to identify this, which is not to say... We're not putting a value on it, but just saying the bias that we have when we look at this material is to give more weight to those who were oppressed than those who were the oppressors. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing because we hear about the oppressors all the time, you know? Well, nobody thinks they're oppressors at the time, right, you right. know what I mean? Hello, like, yeah. That's part, of the, that's part of the problem is that, like, two people are completely opposed to one another and both think that they're right. It's, you know what I mean? But, but also, what brings the oppressor to that perspective is not an unimportant question. Mm-hmm. I think fear, because... Uh, to go back to Daryl Davis, one of his points was that, like, when you're ignorant of something, you're, you're as a human, you're fearful of what you, you can't what see, you don't what, know. You can't, you, what you can't understand, you know what I mean? And that fear breeds hatred, and that hatred can turn into destruction. And I thought that was, like, it's very, like, that's kind of the value of history is once you dispel that ignorance, it's no longer something you don't understand, and you no longer can become hateful, you know what I mean? So, of... You go to a public school. Yeah. A very history-oriented public right, school. Very history-oriented public school. Are you taught to, to engage with history from a, with a critical yeah, eye? Yeah. I mean, I think they do a really good job at American Studies of, of doing that. But the problem is even when you're doing revisionist history, I guess, or even when you're being critical, like, you have to be critical of being critical. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, we did learn... You know, we, we do two years of global history versus the mandated one. We do three years of U.S. history versus, you know, the one year that most people do. So we do go really in depth. But I had a personal issue with 
with something that I experienced in my history classes, like I kind of got the impression that they were trying to teach us that it was like cyclical and like, like had a story arc, you know what I mean? And I personally thought that was not true. You know what I mean? History doesn't work that way. Like they were like, you know, things go bad and then they go good. And then, but you know what I mean? And I just, it's not so easy to, to map it out as your point. Yeah. Because history is really, you know, countless people doing countless things and it has ripple effects. You know what I mean? It's, it's incredibly complicated. It's not, it's not a story. You know what I mean? It's it not, it it's is not a story, checkers. but it's not, you know, yeah. it's not checkers. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's multi-level chess. It's not simple. Taken to the extreme, right? Mm-hmm. That's really what's going on. Uh, Helena, so for you, when history is taught, is it, is there a strong point of view? Is there a strong underpinning in the way that it's presented? Well, right now we have, and the special class in my school is called Constructing America. In 11th grade, all the juniors are have constructing, which is a combination of English and history to look at U.S. history. And it's reading texts, it's reading um, historical documents and while we're learning that history. And so I think by doing that, we're forced to look at so many different perspectives. We don't just look at the facts, obviously. Um, so it's primary source research. It's primary source research, but also comments on that, so also secondary sources. And every time we read something, we have to focus on who wrote this and what was their bias, and then who were they addressing. Because part of that is is understanding that everything we read has a particular POV, has a particular point of view, mm-hmm. right? The our, our, our Exodus narrative has a particular point of view. And... Uh, yeah. Right, that that's that's piece of what's going on. I was going to say something else, but besides point of view, yes, there was a piece in the I think this was in the Times also about a, um, I guess in in Britain it's called a prep school or a, you know one of those private schools like yeah, like my dad yeah. wants one. Else. Yeah, so this one, uh, the insignia had a red dot on a wall. And and bricks and, and books, I believe. And that red dot had to do with Jewish blood libel because somebody who was a teacher did some research as to how this insignia was created in the 15th. I mean, it's, yeah, these aren't well, really old time. schools, what right? What do you mean by Jewish blood libel? Libel? Oh, the, the Jewish blood libel was that Jews around Easter time, around well, around oh, like Passover, sacrifice. right? Well, yes. no, 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 no. They 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 would uh, kidnap uh, Christian children mm-hmm. and use their blood in the seder. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. And then and that. By would, the way, we don't. We don't. <laughs> at do least at Tequila, we don't. Yeah, we, we don't. don't no, we don't do that. And then that would give permission to. Um, yeah, be anti-Semitic. <laughs> well, be more than anti-Semitic would be. Uh, to have violence against members of the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Well, right there, you kind of have an example of how history can get contorted because, you know, Europeans are started to use Christianity as a justification for like, oh, the poor are poor and the rich are rich and God is all powerful. So that's, he's appointed us to these roles and don't get jealous. You know what I mean? Don't cross any boundaries. And that's not really what Jesus Christ espoused. He he was really all about loving your fellow human and so 
two radically different perspectives from the same religion. Source. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and and, and people with, people twist things to serve their ends. I just mean, it's always, just a human habit. Always. Yeah. Always we're always twisting things to serve our end, but it's very important to recognize that. And I think I remember when I was in rabbinical school, we had to take a course in historiography, which is it's just a critical look at history. We were given a book uh, to read about the origins of the Bible. And I think it was one of the few members of my class who basically said, I don't see the supporting evidence for this particular theory. And my teacher was really pleased with me that I was critical enough mm-hmm. to do that. And I, I learned that in ninth grade. Because yeah. uh, I had a teacher who said, when you read the paper, read it with a critical eye. Anything that comes in your possession about an event, read it with a critical eye. Understand who's speaking. And, and, and yes, and it's nice to say, oh, we're on the side of the underdog. But, but, we're on our own side. <laughs> but the truth is, you know, don't let, allow that sense of, oh, I'm on the side of the underdog to give you a sense of moral superiority. Yeah. That's a dangerous place to be as well. You know, I mean, going to a place like Auschwitz and the fact that there will be almost no survivors left in five years by the time we get to the 80th commemoration. Telling this story then becomes the duty of all the other generations that follow. And how do you tell that story? And in one of the articles I sent you, the question that the what the route was, is it better to say, stay silent or is it better to speak up? Because it's so horrible that you can never do it, fully do it justice. So, so I'm going to frame it another way. We have the story of the Exodus. We have the story, uh, biblically, we have the book, we have Shemot, we have the different parshiot, the different sections of the Torah in the book of Exodus. We move very quickly from a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph to people being enslaved to boys being killed at birth to an enslavement. And guess what we don't have in that enslavement narrative? What? No details. (laughs) There's no detail on what it was like to be a slave except for this one incident where you see Moses going out and seeing a slave master beating a slave and and him getting incensed about it and kill, killing the slave master. Right? That's the one incident that we have in, in a whole narrative. And yet, the liberation piece is the piece that gets pushed forward. So I want to posit something for you. Is it because telling the story of what it's like to be a slave is so hard for those on the outside to even begin to comprehend. I think that's definitely true. I mean, it's it's difficult to imagine being in that situation. Um, but I think in that case, it's also the story, it seems to me a lot like the story is told to make you feel like, to appreciate what you do have. It's a lot about like, we were slaves and now we're free, right? So like this, that story to me is a lot about like recognizing how much better it is than how what you have. And yet, one of the other Jewish narratives we have is the wailing of the people, which you read at uh, which you were at Tisha B'av, right? Mm-hmm. Which is almost like 
that was pretty... It's pretty intense. Yeah, right? it was extremely It's intense. extremely <laughs> intense narrative of of things being the worst they could possibly yes. be. It could. It's akin to a Holocaust narrative. And we read it once a year, in the dark, on the floor, right? Sort of saying, this is the worst, because... We it's so hard to live in those very dark spaces. And so the way we tell the story of our liberation, it's a liberation story, is a way to, to move forward. So how do we use history? Yeah. Can I just ask a clarifying question sure. about like so the Joseph that leads the Israelites into Canaan, it's that's a different Joseph from the jacket guy. You know it's the same Joseph. It's a, wait, wait. It's the same Joseph? It's the same Joseph. So Joseph with a multicolored coat, right? He gets thrown in the pit by his brothers, who's really jealous. He ends up being sold as a something into Egypt. Uh-huh. Gets Rises really high. Gets brought down low because he won't be seduced by the woman he works for. Gets thrown in jail. Starts interpreting dreams in jail. Pharaoh's got these dreams. He hears about this guy in jail who's really good at interpreting dreams, brings him up. He interprets dreams. He gets made Pharaoh's number two guy. And then he brings his whole family down to Egypt during a time of famine. But I thought that was like the origin of the Jews being enslaved in Egypt. So that's not the same. That's not the same Joseph as after Moses. No, there is no Joseph after Moses. What? No, 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 no. (laughs) Okay. So you know how they conquer Canaan? Yeah, that's around. Joshua. Oh, Joshua. Okay. <laughs> All right, cool. I don't know. I was reading about that whole, um, the whole story of like their conquering of Canaan. And I just thought it was interesting because like these people had just been enslaved and they were kind of, what, you know, but they I don't think it's from- historically, I don't really think it's history, but um, I think they probably, the kingdom that became the Israelites later on, I'm sure they probably like identified with the small group of people who maybe historically did leave Egypt. And that was like a a narrative that distinguished them from the rest of the people in that region because they were really very closely related. You know what I mean? So Yeah, no, no. Really so yeah, so that's it's a different You quickly you can quickly go from being the victim to But the on the other hand, what we have in those narratives, just to bring up the Joshua narrative, the Joshua narrative is, you know, of of conquering this place pretty easily coming in and this is a place that has all these different groups yeah, living in, right? <laughs> and then when you look at the book of Judges, which is actually happening simultaneously to the book of Joshua, you could look at it that way, is much more complicated. It's not easy peasy. So one of my, my teachers, I, I love this this way of understanding it. It's like you're playing a video game. You have two choices one door makes success really easy and the other door makes it very complicated and the chances of winning are really hard and you just keep keep getting pummeled. And the book of Judges is all about getting pummeled all the time. I like that. Until the very end of the book of Judges, the status of women is at its lowest ebb. And that's where we, and the, the beginning of a unified kingdom happens when uh, the people realize they need a king, they, they need a temporal figure to stand in front of them. That's really interesting. Now, do I, is how historically accurate is this? I don't know. Yeah. But again, 
for us looking at it, it really it helps us understand human nature, the need for people to have somebody to look up to. Even though I could make an argument that Saul, why did they look up to Saul? He was tall, he was good looking, um, he had a powerful presence. Not too burning. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. yeah. And so, history is that a history or is it a story? Is it where That's do we a story that became history? You know? Sort of, yeah. Right. That, you know, some look at it as history, and some of it look at it as. Okay, these these are stories. These are tales from which we can gain insight as human beings. Mm-hmm. And people from all over the world read the read the Torah, read the Bible. You know what I mean. So I find that really, really interesting. You know what I mean. It's like we. I mean, we as Jews consider it our story, but it's the best selling book of all time. You're it's part of the best selling book of all time. So it's a very universal. Well, my dad's comment was, if you can't find it there, it, didn't, it, it can't happen uh, in terms of human behavior. Yeah. Every kind of human behavior is absolutely there. Well, is there like women's, like, the Torah isn't really from anybody's narrative, right? But is there like... A, That's pretty male-dominated. Yeah. I mean, women, when we get women named, it's a big deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just want to put that out there. The fact that the two midwives get named, really big deal. Mm-hmm. They're not matriarchs. They're not, you know, Rich who are these, right? It's not Moses' sister. These are these two women who we don't know whether they were Egyptian, whether they were Hebrews. What and, do you think of that? And they stood up to, to, to Pharaoh. And, and the rabbis had a field day with that, saying, well, it was really Miriam and Yocheved. <laughs> and it was, you know, I mean, they make... Classic rabbis. Classic rabbis. Let's make a midrash about it so that it's really, really ours. But to me, it's they're exemplars of speaking truth to power, right? Yeah. So so going back to, to the way we tell these stories, how do you want to use history? What does it do for you? And this, here we are in a very complex moment in the time, you know, in, in human history, I think. We have rise of dictatorships. We have more autocracy than we've had in a while. And if you want to say it's about fear, but my question is, how do you, given the age that you are, how do you respond to history? Where, can you use it as a tool? What What's your relationship to it? Well, I, I think Julian said before that <laughs> you didn't like looking at history as like a story arc. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like I see what you're saying. I feel like there's definitely patterns that you can see and and certain markers, you know, red flags or, like, good markers, bad markers, whatever. And I feel like if you look at situations where things were kind of going south, there are certain things that you'll see in a lot of places where things were going south. I think, I mean, sadly, a lot of those markers are present today in our world, but... I think it's also important to look at things where it turned around and it went north and look for those markers and maybe try to bring those markers out and cause them to be there instead of just relying on them to just appear. Because we, we have enough history now that we can kind of shape what's going to happen in the future by looking at those patterns. Through your actions. Right, yeah. Not just looking. Well, yeah, right, yeah. It has to have cooperation from leaders and everything, which is always difficult, but... <laughs> I think we also need to remember our part in history, even if I'm individually am not 
tied to it, but my ancestor, looking at my ancestors, and also this reminds me of a podcast I was listening to on how it was discovered how some banks around now, very prominent banks, are had ties to slavery and the slave trade, and how when that news came out, how they dealt with that, how some of them tried to cover it up and just played off like, oh, well, not now, so whatever. And then some of them took action and made that public and had a whole his, historical research team go and try to just deal with that. But um, I think it's how we react to the history and how we remember it that, well, yeah, makes us. Shape so us. there was an article about a, a First Nation that was just recognized in the New York Times yesterday. It's a tribe that was recognized, and they've been fighting it for like 150 years. Which tribe? Do you I don't know. I didn't, somebody was mentioning this at dinner last night. So what you're saying is here, here's a group of people who have been dispersed across the United States, who've been fighting for 150 years to be recognized for who they are, and that you just don't stop. And that's the arc of history in a different way, right? That you keep on pressing forward, that you just don't stop. For me, one of the things that I that I think about a lot is when I look at the history of the, of the Holocaust, of the Shoah, I think of who are the people that I really admire. And the people that I really admire are the ones who prevailed not by just looking out for themselves, which I'm not saying that that's not what you do. Yeah, of course. But, but who I admire, because I don't know that I could do what they did, is, is in the midst of all of that chaos, taking care of others. To me, that's like the true, ex- that's a lesson that I want to aspire to, that I don't know that I could ever reach, but it's just, it's on the table, right? That through their kindness, not that they saved lives, but that maybe made the end of those lives just a little bit better. Just, it's a painful thought, but Mm -hmm. yet some solace in it. So remembering is important. Taking out the past is important. Uh, you're making me think of the German company that now owns Krispy Kreme Donuts. That they found out that they had uh, slave labor and all of that, right? And they're doing a whole thing of, of the descendants are doing a complete mea culpa. We are responsible. We have to do something about yeah. this. So Hugo Boss and um, Chanel was a, was a big Nazi sympathizer. But, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, you you see Hugo Boss everywhere. You don't think that they would they made all the SS uniforms and Vermont uniforms and all that stuff. It, it I mean, for me, I feel like I learned history because I know that history is like is what is what creates us. You know what I mean? It's what shapes our reality and not just our reality, but the way that we experience our reality. You know what I mean? So for me, history is kind of a way like when I experience something that's like sad or you know just bothers me i have some ability to be like okay you know here's the facts here's what i here's what i know and it helps me process that like the holocaust is something that's so inconceivable that even people who are nazis don't even believe it happens like it is terrible it's it's fewer people it's it's nightmarish it's it's inconceivable and it's 
So it's like an attempt to kind of like right. bridge that gap between something that feels so un, un of this world and I guess like try to take something from it. You because know? it was so organized. It was so organized. But it was also extremely brutal. Like there were the concentration camps, but a lot of people were just shot in their in their villages, you know, and... When I was your age and I was taking history, um, European history... My parents were not pleased that I did this. Uh, I'd grown up with a story that my uh, father's family, most of it, had been killed in Yugoslavia um, digging their own graves by Zonda commandos. And I made it my mission that I was going to study this and I was going to read all about Adolf Eichmann and I was going to read about the final solution and I was going to confront the history. Now, that's a long time ago. I know there's more information now than when I did this. But it was really important for me to know. And I think that I don't know what it did. I don't know how it formed me by having to do this research. But but when you grow up with certain images sort of in place and that you didn't see, right? You weren't there. But yet the image is so strong because you also know, and this is the other piece of it, you know what came before. In the, the one of the articles I sent you about the Roma woman, some of her paintings are from before she went into the camps. To me, that's just as important as the paintings she did of, of what was going on in the camps because if we only see the stacks of shoes that you saw at the museum, you can sort of neutralize yourself to it. But if you see photographs of families... Uh, having a picnic beforehand, you understand that we're talking about real lives. And the stories I have about my family is my father told me about, you know, the importance of his grandmother and how she was deaf, except when she didn't want to be. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, and the fact that she was killed in that way puts the two pieces together, puts the two halves of the story together. And how do we do that when we're reading? So you do that when you hear read a first person narrative. You get a sense of a little bit of, of what the situation was before the traumatic mm-hmm. incident. Mm-hmm. And then the tra- whatever the traumatic incident was. So I'm going to challenge you again because of, of the way that you're being taught is of looking at the, under, uh, the underdogs, the oppressed. How can you fill out that picture more, more fully? Well, it's, I mean, I think it's important to look at, like you were saying, what was before the oppression, um, so you can see, like, how there were these cultures, like the uh, Taino people, we actually did talk much about um, before we started studying um, the colonization of the island, but that, that there were these cultures there, and then they were almost completely wiped out, just completely massacred. And that's, I mean, that adds a lot to the picture just there. But then I think also what adds to the picture is looking at about how it's still affecting it and how after the, the oppression, which is, you know, it's gone now. I'm making air quotes. You can't see me, but it's not there anymore. But it's still having such a huge effect on um, these countries and how they are run and how they're not really run. Yeah. You know? So I, I don't yeah. Can I just add to that? I was in um, a class on uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. I probably mentioned this about a thousand times on this podcast, but um, yeah, like we were learning about 
like all that stuff and um i think it's it kind of exemplifies like what history has to offer us is because like just for just as a different example like only nine out of 55 african countries are are certified democracies so if you don't understand history you might draw a conclusion about african people that and that's not really what that's not true you know what i mean it's really a very complicated reason for why like the political systems of these countries are in crisis. You know, I was in, in one of my classes the other day. Um, this kid made the comment that um, Arabs are Arabs don't have functioning democracies because they identify more with their tribal identities than their governments. And I was just like, oh my god, man! Like <laughs> I've been in history classes with you for like four years, and like you clearly don't, you clearly weren't. You know, it's like it's like confirmation bias. You know what I mean? Like he's picking and choosing the things that reinforce his narrative. But in reality, that's not why the Arab world doesn't have that many democracies. It's because of colonialism. It's because of all the things that took place. So I don't know. I think history kind of points out the absurdity of things like, you know, the German Germany had like one percent Jewish population. Then when they annexed Poland, they radically increased the number of Jews within their borders. So, you know, if you know that, you can just be like, well, the Germans were hypocrites. You know, if they really, if they were really just wanted to be free of the Jews and they believed that the German people and the Jews had to be separate, they would never have annexed Poland. So it's like, once you know that, you kind of like start to get a grasp of like what the, what's really happening there. You know what I mean? It's really, I think anti-Semitism is like, it's like everything else. It's a narrative. It's a, it's a tool that certain people have used historically to serve their own ends. You know, it's it's as simple as that, in my opinion. It's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, I know, I know, but, but, but it's but like, yeah, okay. it, it can I'll, become I'll, that. It, it can, can become, become a tool become and, yeah. a, and a ploy, really. I don't think, I'm Hitler was a genuine anti-Semite, of course, and there were people within the Nazi party who were monsters and unredeemable, in my opinion. But I made the point, like, last year in my, in my history class that even people who were in the SS, even people who committed these terrible crimes against humanity are people. They were put in a position where they ended up, you know what I mean? We, I'm we not just, saying they're we, innocent. They're guilty of whatever they well, committed, but, but they're also it, human beings. Well, but the, and, the, and that's the, the frightening piece of it. Yeah. Is what are we capable of doing as human beings? They just, uh, another piece I read was... Uh, one of the people who was killed in the Sobibor, which was a concentration camp, they had an uprising. And they waited till the commandant wasn't there, so the assistant commandant was there, and he was killed. Well, he had a photo album. He had a very huge photo album that the family has, it's, it's now being published again and being looked at more closely. It, it came out a while ago and now again. And you see these guys having, you know, their parties, having Jews come and dance for them, having, living what we might think of as normal lives in the shadow of a Terrible of a death camp. Yeah. And what struck me in the movie The Irishman, which you may have, it's really I long. I didn't like it that much. <laughs> it's, well, it's really long. But the yeah, only thing that I, that, that, that really, that sort of helped me understand the brutality of that central character is in World War II being, t- having, Killing and killing and killing and killing. Mm. If you're, when you are told as a soldier to kill and kill and kill, if it doesn't snap right away, there's a piece of your soul that gets cut. And so that 
for him becoming a mobster was not such mm. a big step because he had no trouble killing. And that's the point. These these people have lost a piece of their souls. They've, they've been habituated to doing terrible things. Yes. yes. But they're still human beings. That's, that's, that's like the, part of the terrible thing about war or whatever is like, you can be, you can go and kill somebody who you don't know, and you have way more in common with them than you have difference. They are, they are also victims in a sense. I guess it's like, or some of them are victims in a sense. So I feel like that's history. Kind of takes away your ego or your sense of superiority because you realize, oh my god, like I'm also extremely fallible. Like, right. you know what I mean? I am, like, so I'm that we, also, we're we're all capable of the yeah. worst and we're capable of the yeah. best, and and. And history is here to to show us both sides of that. Mm-hmm. Can I just add on? I'm sorry. Go for it. Have you guys seen The Sopranos? No. Mm-hmm. All right. This is my favorite TV show, so like I need to talk about this. But the the main character is this guy Tony Soprano. He's like a mob boss in New Jersey. And the whole point of this show is like it shows his daily life. It's not like other the pre existing mafia movies where it's like you know oh, they go and make a lot of money da 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 da. Like it shows the fact that people in the mafia are barely making a living. You know what I mean? Like he's he's kind of depressed, and on the other hand, he's like a a murdering, extorting criminal who who like we would all fear in real life. You know what I mean? So the the what David Chase, the writer, was doing was over the course of six seasons, making you in some way root for. Tony Soprano, even though everything, every part of your being wants to like, would is repelled by him. You know what I mean? So I thought that was kind of the beauty of the beauty or the art of the Sopranos was even these horrible people are, you start to empathize with them. They take this oath to the mafia and they get stuck in this lifestyle where they commit these awful acts. And it's, they're, they're also victims. So I, that's what they're I, victims of systems. Yeah. When I watched that show, it, it made me think a lot about, I guess, about history you know what i mean about i think the psychology of history too is really interesting like sky france fanon he was a early pan-africanist from martinique in the french caribbean and he was one of the first african people or black people to get their um psychiatry degree and his dissertation was on the effects of colonialism the effects of of racism and slavery etc on the psychology of african people or black people and it was rejected by the University of Lyon in, in France. Like, but we're only, you know, groups like Black Lives Matter are only now introducing those ideas, the mainstream. We're only now coming to terms with like being able to understand history's effect on like the minds of people, on the like ideologies of people. So I thought that was really profound. Like So I wanna I wanna wrap up with some concluding thoughts. We've been sort of over a large territory today, which is fine. And what is this, you know, where do you go with this at the end of today? Where, how does this propel you forward? Are you going to ask a different question in a history class? Are you going to do something a little differently just from having this conversation? Or are you, were, are you in the same place you were when you walked in? That's my question. Are you in the same place you were when you walked in? Bernie? Uh, this conversation has definitely made me think a lot about my own thinking um, in regards to history, you know, like how we perceive it and how I perceive it and how our perceptions are shaped by what we're given in a history class or what we're shown in uh, media. So with that knowledge, I don't know if I'm going to really change that much, but it's definitely, you know, it's in my head now. I don't think it's going to 
come out. I'm going to be thinking about it. So, yeah, I think that's important. Julian? I think that we're kind of inadequate in the face of these things. You know what I mean? Like, it's we don't really have the ability to comprehend, to do justice to it. Like, like you were saying earlier and that, like, going forward, I'm going to remember that I'm kind of inadequate. <laughs> Not to... I know that's kind of depressing, but yeah, you know what I mean. But you know, but do you know where you're what you're striving for? Um, I'm striving to keep that in mind, and not, okay. you know what I mean. All right. Yeah. Overall thing that I took away from this amazing conversation was um, to not just remember, but remember and take action. Well, what I was reminded of was how uh, my great great grandfather, um, when he was living in Hungary, as he was walking to school each morning, his some people in his school would throw rocks at him because he was Jewish. And then right now my cousin is, he's in college and he is right now in Hungary. Uh, he's doing a semester in Hungary because he wants to remember his history, our history. So I think I'm going to try to take more action like that. Of connecting. Yes. Yeah, so connecting, connecting the dots yeah. over time really powerful thank you thank you for having this this conversation i know we tend not to have easy ones but i really appreciate your thoughtfulness (laughs) also thank you to all our listeners wherever you are and (laughs) you know whoever you are we appreciate it have a good day thank you for taking the time to listen to tehillah talks for more information about tehillah go to congregationtehillah.org Tune in next time when our teens continue to reflect on issues of the day through a Jewish lens.